Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Last week was really a great week. I hope that if you're with us at the 10-year celebration that your heart was just full. Uh, it was a great thing to slow down and remember uh, just a long path of God's faithfulness uh, towards us. 10 years uh, together, he's done many good works. So it was just fun. I, I hope that you enjoyed it. I, I hope that your heart was full. I hope that that encourages you, uh, not just to look back at the 10 years before, but what is uh, 10 years and a week and, and 11 years and 12 years look like uh, walking together as a church. So, man, it was good to be there with you, and I, I hope that you enjoyed it. So uh, beyond just our 10-year celebration party that we had last year, we also finished our Identity and Vision series, uh, which means that we're going to do this. We're going to kind of uh, straddle in between now and Advent and starting a much bigger uh, book next year uh, with starting the book of Titus, a, a smaller book uh, right now. It's going to kind of bridge the gap for us, but also be uh, a little bit helpful for us. So here's the method to the madness, the, the kind of reason. We've been in this vision series tackling really what does it look like to uh, live out our identity as a church? What does it look like to live as a church, a body of Christ together? In Titus, what it's going to look at is it's going to show us or zero in what does it look like to live as individuals who are Christians. So there's going to be the corporate aspect of how do we live as a church, but also the individualistic aspect of how do we live as individuals saved, hence the name of this series, The Good Life. And you're going to hear me say that just quite a bit this morning, the, the, the good life for you. Uh, to lay some groundwork, which you try and do at the beginning of most all the exegetical series uh, that we do, we'll try and give a little bit of context about the book. Titus uh, was written by the Apostle Paul, as is quite a bit of the New Testament. But Paul and Titus uh, had preached together uh, in this place called Crete. And after that time, Paul sends back a message or a letter to his uh, protege, Titus, after her, his time there. So uh, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It is going to be directly west of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of the epicenter of Christianity when, when things kind of got going. Uh, so it's west of uh, Jerusalem. It's directly south of Corinth and a little bit southwest of Ephesus. Why is the geographic uh, location important? Well, really, this place, Crete, that a church was started, it reflects the promise of God in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, there's this promise that the Holy Spirit will come upon the people of God, and they will witness about Jesus and, and the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel being preached in Crete shows Oh, wait, it actually did move out. It isn't just in a couple neighboring territories anymore. It is headed towards the end of the earth. The gospel is expanding and the kingdom of God is expanding. So it was expanding in a time when the Jewish leaders of the day uh, and, and really the, the Romans were trying to stamp out the life of Jesus and the story of Jesus despite all of their best efforts, including crucifying Jesus, the, the story of Christ, the gospel of Jesus were exploding in their day. So after the missional success, when they initially go there to Crete, Paul ends up leaving Titus behind, right? They go, they minister, some people get saved. Paul leaves Titus with the purpose of being the pastor and appointing other leaders in this place so it's not just a kind of hot mess after they go in. So Paul then moves to the next place on his eventual path to 
Rome. So in our modern days, we communicate uh, not with letters. We do the text message thing uh, quite a bit. Uh, maybe if it's in the church uh, aspect of things, maybe you'll post something on Realm if you need to communicate something to, to someone else. But they didn't have any of that. So when Paul needed to communicate with the church, specifically uh, Titus then, he pens him a letter. Someone brings it to him, and this is how he's sharing important information with him. What he's wanting to do in this letter, and this is what we're going to see really throughout the whole book, is he's going to encourage Titus to make absolutely sure that the gospel, the news of Jesus, penetrates into the lives of the people, especially their leaders, so that they will live, and and here it is again, the the good life out because of the gospel. And this may seem like a given, okay, let the gospel permeate, shouldn't they already know this? It, It may seem like that would be obvious to Titus, and and I think he probably did know this, but likely word got back to Paul uh, that the people in, in Crete were having a pretty hard time, right? They initially ministered. There's this uh, beginning stage and this excitement. And then later on, some things started getting difficult because the, the culture in Crete was forming the Christians in Crete more than the gospel was after Paul left. This is Titus's situation. Excited to be a believer, excited to follow Christ. All of a sudden, they look just like everyone around them. Now, to explain the culture in Crete, one of their most respected philosophers, this is one of their own guys that they valued and they liked, he famously wrote of Crete saying this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Always. This is how he wrote about his own people, and they would have been like, yep, nailed it. That's exactly who we are. So in, in Austin, Texas, they, they have the mantra, uh, keep Austin weird, right? And this is like, yeah, that's totally us. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be normal. Well, they seem to be uh, really in line with the God that they had worshiped for so long, Zeus. They loved the idea of being liars. They, they, they cherished uh, really this idea of being harsh and brutal and evil and even being lazy and not having to do anything and doing really, really well. This is their own description of themselves, Now, while this was the description for the first century person living in Crete, what we need to understand a little bit is this could also be a pretty decent explanation for the 21st century Western culture as well. It it could also work a little bit for us. Uh, liars in our culture are championed uh, as uh, as ones who are carrying out their personal truth in in our culture. Evil is praised as brave and courageous in our culture. Uh, Brutes are feared for their loud tirades, and they're even respected. Look at their power. Look how strong they are. There's these people who do that, and they're like, yeah, that, that, man, that's, that's to be admired. And, and laziness is, is really our entitlement in full bloom. The, the culture in Crete then and the culture now, there's, there's some untimely similarities. There's some disturbing similarities there. So Tim Chester says Paul is answering the, the heavy collection of questions that we may have as well. How do we live as Christians in what looks like a dishonest, harsh, and selfish culture? How do we do that? How do we follow Jesus in a culture that looks so much different? Not that we're better than the culture, but how do we follow Jesus in a culture that the water is just heading the other direction? How do we survive without adopting their ways of life? How can we live the good life in such a hard situation where we feel crazy because everyone is elevating and going another way? These are the questions that the book of Titus addresses, and I think they're helpful questions because at some point, I think they're questions that we wrestle with as well. How, how do we and our culture live out a gospel-filled life that glorifies God well, living out the beauty of who we are well in, in a world that looks just so much different? 
Uh, today we're going to use this introductory message to lay the groundwork for Titus. I'll just warn you, uh, we're going to talk for a, a decent bit. We're only going to read four verses, but we're going to try and set the foundation for, for all that's going to come. What we must see is the idea of the good life is not just a cute title to put on, on, on a Photoshop picture to, to put on the screen. The idea of the good life is a biblical concept that we have to choose to accept or reject, and, and all of humanity does the same. It's not a cool title. It's not just a niche thing that we say, it's a biblical concept, and it's a very specific and it's a very narrow concept as well. Like we may like to say, when you hear the good life, what we often do is we, we translate it a little bit differently. We hear the good life and we're prone to say, well, that person lived a good life, a good life. Like there are many different possibilities for a good life. And what the Bible is trying to show and Paul is being very specific about here is there's not 20 good options. There's not a million ways to live a good life. There's one way to live the good life and you accept that or you reject that and what you look like and what you do and how you function is greatly changed by how you answer that and if you're letting the good life mold you or not. As we look through the book of Titus, there's going to be these themes or words that are on repeat for us quite often. They're going to be godliness and goodness. Godliness and goodness. In chapter 1, verse 16, we're warned about being those unfit to do anything good. Be careful about not being that. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, we hear that grace teaches us to live godly lives. It empowers us and teaches us and shows us how to do that. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul stresses that we are to devote ourselves to doing what is good. You're going to see these themes on repeat, and you really can't get away from them. What we're going to understand is the good life is tied to good works, doing what is good, and the good life is tied to living out and demonstrating godliness and how you live and what you do. What we need to understand is Goodness and godliness are the gauge, they're the standard, they are the metric for the good life. They are the way to grade what a good life is and the standard by which the good life is measured. Now, Titus is considered a pastoral epistle, which is just uh, meaning it is a letter written to a pastor. It's one of three, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then this book, Titus, are all that. So uh, they're letters to pastors, and it makes sense that the focus is, hey, pastor, continually lead your people to live their lives in a way that is good and godly, that follows the good life through the gospel. The rub here is that the idea of this narrow good life carries with it something. It carries a transcendent nature. The good life stands over and above all things underneath of it as it floats over the situation and over the location. There's a tendency to believe that Paul is pushing the good life for a Christian. Oh, we're just learning what a Christian's the good life looks like. But there's, a, there's probably another good life for a Hindu and another the good life for uh, a Muslim. And there's definitely, there has to be another the, the good life for an atheist because they don't believe in God. So why would you hold them to the standard of godliness? And then we may even change that the good life is, is, is really changed by where you're located. Like, well, the good life for a person in Africa surely is different than the good life for a person who's in Germany, which is different than a person in Russia, which is, it's got to be different than, than, than communist China living out the good life there. And that's definitely going to be different than the good life in Missouri. So we tend to geographically, we, we, we tend to change things that way. And we also tend to say, well, and doesn't your historical moment have to dictate the good life as well? Uh, as if you, if you were born 500 years ago, 
the good life that you would have lived then is, is much different than now because we know so much more now. We're always moving the target. We're moving the measure. We're moving uh, the, the gauge of what the good life is. And what we must see is the good life is not moldable and it's not situationally dependent. It's tied not to your personal faith or lack thereof, and it's not tied to geography, and it's not tied to culture, it's not tied to gender, it's not tied to class, it's not tied to education, and it's definitely not, it's not tied to time. This presents a possible tension if in our hearts if we think about it, because this is, is what we need to understand. There is a definitive of the good life, and it isn't just an adjustable situation. So that means that we don't get to read through this epistle and selectively go, well, since it's adjustable, I'll do that and I'll like this and I'm kind of fond of that. But, but since it's adjustable, I'll ignore this and I won't do that because that's hard and doesn't sound fun. There's really a binary choice in this book. We accept the Bible's version of the good life or we reject it. If you accept the Bible's version of the good life, then you begin to live a life that conforms to that through Jesus. And if you reject it, you go, no, it's not important to me. I'll do what I want. There's only two choices None of those choices is molding the good life. It's accepting or rejecting it. Now, the question, why is there only one version of the good life? Why can't there be many? Why aren't there tons of options? Why aren't there different flavors? And, and this is where you'll hear the cultural language. If God is so loving, why wouldn't he make many, many, many different ways? And, and the reason that there's only one version of the good life is really because of what the word good means. God is the objective standard for what good is measured by. It's only him. It is him. He sets the standard, he makes the rule, and he sets the gauge, and he is the gauge. That means that, the, that God dictates the good life in himself and in his character and in who he is because only God has the right to set what is good and only he is the pure and holy one who has the power to actually live it out. We may find when we want ourselves to allow a myriad of different options of the good life, when in our heart we receive that tension of like, I don't know, shouldn't there be more? And shouldn't we kind of be, be considerate and, and make more ways when we want to make many different standards, uh, when we want to let different individuals or different cultures or different preferences set the standard, what we're doing is we're saying, well, that person should be able to supersede God and insert their own form of goodness over God's. This is what Romans talks about quite a bit. This is the creation trying to paint over the canvas of the creator going, I could probably do a better job. Check it out. Watch my picture instead. This happens out of pride quite often. I just want to be in charge. Don't tell me what to do. And it also comes out of fear and distrust of God, that God is actually a good authority to have. Fear that he may not have our best interests in mind, that he may not really want the best, that he may not want joy for you. Fear that following God will somehow take away some better or preferred thing from you. But God doesn't want to do that. The Western mindset that we live in has had a modern resurgence of an old idea. And this is what we've talked about a little bit with a faithful biblical worldview uh, the other week and even another book that we're going to be going into uh, next year. What we want to do is not become like sociologists, but we want to look at the culture around us and history around us and understand maybe why things are happening the way that they are. In our modern Western culture, uh, an old idea has come back. And it is that the removal of any objective standard of good will fix human, uh, human flourishing. 
Uh, if we can just take away God as the standard, if we can take away the metric, we'll, we'll take the pressure off and things will be easier and people will actually thrive. When there's no rule, you're going to be surprised and people are going to thrive. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the standard out. This is the move of the Enlightenment long, long ago. And the Enlightenment pushed this idea that, you know what, we're going to replace uh, God as the standard with, we're going to replace it with human reason, with science, and logic. Right, those things, just inside of humans, reason, science, and logic, we're, they're going to free us from the bondage of religion, and, and we're going to have uh, something better, and we're going to live in a better creation because of it. So let's ditch it. The idea that a moral authority or an objective standard of good from God is oppressive and, and cruel, and that humans will do better because of it, so we're just going to, to kick it out. Now, what's happened nowadays in this resurgence is nowadays, it's throwing out God as the standard. This is happening again, just like the Enlightenment, but instead of replacing it with logic or reason or science, uh, what our modern culture wants to do is they want to replace the standard with feelings and desires and wants and emotions which is a much more dangerous proposition. Are you following me? Hey, we're going to let reason and, and, and logic stand as sovereign over us. Okay, we're going to ditch that. We're going to let what I feel stand as sovereign over us. It's even sketchier territory. This is where the pandemic of my truths was born. What that is is an idea that the way you feel sovereign over all things, it stands over and above and it dictates all things around you that our desires are the gateway to happiness, that they hold the key to a better place. You just need to figure out what you want and figure out how to get it, and then things are going to be good. But what does that create? Well, it, if a world where morality and good shifts depending on what someone feels, but based on what they want, then that means this. That means that well, what is right for one person may be wrong for another. And what's wrong for another person may be right for another. Why? Because it's all based not on a standard or an authority or something over the top of all things. It's only based upon what you want. Our world is telling us that this is a world of tolerance. What do we see when we, when we pull behind the screen? It's a world of chaos. It's unlivable. It creates something that cannot be sustained Let's walk out the insanity of no moral standard. If each person gets to decide, right? If each person, your feelings, your wants, your emotions, your desires get to dictate what is right in this world, let's walk that out and just talk about what that looks like. If you get into a hypothetical, right? Uh, hypotheticals and hyperbole are, are, are a little bit my, my other love language, but if we get into this debate with someone, over this type of culture, and they start going down the, the, the regular lines of the unfairness of archaic standards, right? You're like, oh, I know where this is going. And, and then they begin to talk about how the removal of any standard is really the liberation of the freedom of the mind, and we do really well there, that God shouldn't get to be the picture of how we live, and that is actually just cruel to put that on people. If someone begins to kind of say those things to you, then I think this is the, the proper way to kind of, in hyperbole, don't do it, but this is the way to, to, to kind of break that down quite quickly. Say, okay, hey, uh, I, I get what you're saying. Emotions, my wants, they should rule all things. That's what you're saying. Yep, okay, all right. I want to try on your worldview. Uh, okay. Can, can I try on your worldview? Yeah, sure, that, that sounds good. Okay, cool. Hold still, I want to punch you in the throat. I, I really, really, really want to punch you in the throat. What happens then? Well, the, the debate changes quite quickly, doesn't it? All of a sudden, something happens. No, you can't do that. That would be wrong. Well, no, you can't tell me that's wrong. 
And then they start appealing to a wrongness or a violation or an immoralness or an injustice. How, how can you claim it's immoral or injustice? There's no standard. And right now, like, I'm not going to hit your nose. I want to leave that alone. But just stand still. Just one good shot. You won't be able to breathe for like three minutes, but you'll be okay. What I want is just one, okay? It's like, sit still. Let's, I want to rock your worldview with you. It doesn't work. We, we laughingly talk about the way that is, but we need to understand If there is no standard, it's a horrific place to live. It is not good. What what we're understanding is why people want no standard is they want autonomy and no one to tell them what to do. To live in that world is horrendous. Why? It is the most violent and destructive and chaotic and abusive place you could possibly be. What does the world devolve into if really your wants end up dealing or dictating what's right or wrong? Well, looks like the Saharan Plains. It's survival of the fittest. What it ends up looking like is the strongest person gets their way and everyone else is hosed. Because you just get to exert what you want over the world and there's nothing to tell you it's wrong because you want to do it. What we need to understand when culture is pushing this is if there is no moral standard and you walk that all the way out, there can be no such thing as murder. I just didn't like them. Rape is gone. I wanted to. Stealing is no issue. I like that. You take all things away if your feelings dictate what is right and what is wrong. And and, and you may say, well, man, that's too far. Seriously, though, if there is no foundation, if there is no anchor, if there's nothing to reference, how how do you do anything? There's no law. There is no court. There's nothing but chaos if you walk that down the full distance of its path. Now, why do we not actually throat punch people? Why do we not steal? Why do we not murder? Why do we not take advantage? Why are we to be uh, generous? Why are we to love our neighbor and care for the least of these? Why are these facets of the, the good life outlined by God? Well, because they reflect the goodness of God. They, they reflect his character. Stealing would be a, a mischaracterization of the generous hand of a loving God who freely made and freely gives and invites us in and says, enjoy the creation. Stealing would, would be a lie about who God is. Murder would devalue the love of God in the Imago Dei placed on all human beings. It would say, God, you're not right. Your image isn't placed on them. I don't like them. And I, they're gone. We're called to be generous because our Father is generous. We're called to help the least of these because our Father sent Jesus into the world to help the least of these who is us spiritually. This is not about good and wrong and moralness only. This is about who God is and the people of God rightly reflecting who God is into the world around them. This means something. We're not aiming for the want life. That, that tension in our soul. We're not trying to live out the should life. We're not trying to aim for the I feel like life, but the good life that follows and reflects a good father. We are image bearers who are called to rightly reflect. Go back to the Old Testament and even the the, the beginning mandate for people. Go, multiply, and show the world who I am. Show them what I am like. Bring glory to me by showing the world who I am and what I'm like by actually being like me. You're going to need Jesus to do that but show them what I'm like. Interestingly enough, what we have to understand and push back, because if you notice for a while, I'm a little bit fired up over how much we've felt on our heels for so long. 
Reason does not dictate you be there. Living this way that shows God to the creation is actually the best place for us to be. You'll be joyful there. You have peace when your head's on the pillow. You're not thinking about all that stuff that you shouldn't have done and those conversations that you shouldn't have had. And interestingly enough, humanity actually thrives when we do that. The, the, the world hates the idea of the good life and a moral authority because we all want autonomy. The best place to live, though, is actually in a place where people model the Father. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4, super long intro for you. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching and entrusting to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul's introduction packs quite a little bit. Uh, and we could have done really a sermon on one and two and an intro and, and quite a bit more, but we won't be able to unpack all of it. But we will look at this. Paul is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus. He knows who he is. Sir, sir, uh, sent to further the faith of God's elect. You've got to wrap your mind around what he's saying there. There's a lot to process. Paul uh, shares that he preaches to the elect so that they will come to faith. This is he scatters the seed of the gospel uh, to uh, people who are dead spiritually in the hopes that some of them will be breathed in life from God and they will be awakened and come to faith. I spread the gospel to see people come to life. This is the mission side of Paul as he moves towards unbelievers, uh, not to tell them they're wrong or to set them in their place or to let them have it. He just shares the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and invites them into that, and he lets God work out the rest after that. The beauty of Paul's ability to missionally focus there is no one's too far gone. He goes to the, to the craziest of places and heralds who Jesus is. God's hand is not too short. No one is unreachable. And he do, also doesn't uh, assume that people in church are already saved. He scatters the seed, knows that God knows who and who is not elect, and lets God straighten out the pieces himself. Now, the other side of the coin is he does not just preach to unbelievers. He doesn't think that once a person is converted, job done, never worry about them, nothing else to do. His second goal is that people will live out godliness as well, that they will mature, that, that they will hear with fresh ears uh, the reality of what God looks like, and they will follow it out. And that's part of what we want to understand today. Our job isn't just to be converted. Our job is to model our Father. And I wonder just how, how that sits on our hearts this morning, just remembering that if you've coasted in a disconnected, since salvation type of, of, of way, you know, I, I, I've been saved, I've done my thing, and you've just kind of after that disengaged a little bit, understand that that's not the only goal for you. The goal is to grow in godliness, not just avoid hell. God wants your faith to flounder to where you're strong and anchored and secure in who he is and that your life will show other people who he is as well. Christ's drive is, I want you, church, to grow in your faith and knowledge of the truth because truth is what leads to godliness. It's a massive part of the beginning. It's why truth is such an important deal. Faith and truth lead to godliness. Knowledge of truth leads somewhere. 
a, a faith in the truth of the gospel does something to how you live is what he's, he's pressing into. It actually leads you to more godliness as you live to reflecting your father to the people that you live around. We had a discussion even in our missional community this week as we began to talk about worldview issues and assumptions that, that we have had over time. The reality of, of younger years, and, and when you start thinking of like 10 years in at a church, and I've been saved for a while, oh, oh man, I'm old, and you begin to think of like the, the old you, th- things and worldview issues and the way that you saw things, and maybe younger arrogance and in the way that you had to tell people they were wrong when, when you were younger and, and just not smart Continual time in the gospel is just sanded off some of those hard edges. What, what does truth do? It changes what you think, and it also changes how you live. Even the reality of what we think and the theology we hold and how we use that in the world changes. Why? Because the gospel and seeing Jesus over and over and over does something. Paul is urging Titus, even if the culture is pushing against the church, and even if people in the church are starting to act a fool and look a whole lot like the culture, do not give up on, do not relent on preaching to them the truth of God because the truth is what saved them and it's what will sanctify them as well. Don't give up. But it's going, like, it's really rough right now. Don't give up. Press forward in a confession of faith and godly conduct. These are the themes that you'll see quite a bit. The confession that we make with our mouth or you made at one point in your life, your, your walk and your faith and, and the picture of who you are should, should be a reflection of the confession that you made. You should look like the things that you say. Why? In the hopeful expectation of living out the eternal life. There's a problem when our confession and our conduct don't match. Why does Paul mention eternal life here? Why doesn't he just say, hey, press on in truth. It'll make you godlier. The end. Just do it. He speaks to them to remind them about what's, re- what's real. Sometimes we get hyper-focused in to where we can't see the, the full biblical picture of what is open to us. Many of the people in Crete were becoming like the culture around them. And there's things that we could press into. They, they were liars and cruel and lazy and brutal and living for themselves. And their sexual immorality that was growing and the men were, were losing all decency and they, were, they had lost all self-control. What we need to understand is they were looking a lot at the God of their day, Zeus, and they were becoming more uh, like the God that they were looking at more than Jesus. They were mixing the worship of pagan things with the worship of Christ. And the people, because of that, because they were looking at another God and the truth of him, they, they started really uh, living lives that started investing more in their feelings and their wants and, and gratifying their desires uh, more than looking at Jesus. They started living like the world in a get-what-you-can-while-you-can-get-it type of way. Oh, it's all good. I'm saved. It's fine. Like, they're doing this thing down there, and I want to go be a part of that. Like, that seems kind of fun. They, they, they're reflecting the culture back, investing short-term. And Paul reminds every believer that we are storing up for eternity, not just today. We store up things, good works, kindness, generosity, and those things will never be forgotten by God the Father. We, we've, we've got to reorder some things at different times. We do not get saved by our good weeks, our works. I will preach that until I die. But God will reward faithfulness after you're saved. There's a beauty of storing up a, 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 a good and well done, my faithful servant, and seeing the beauty of following Jesus out of faith. This is living out the long play. I'm not living for just here and a bigger 401k and three vacations a year. I am living out a good and well done faithful servant and seeing a, a legacy of people who come to know Jesus because of who I am. 
not because of me, because of Jesus through me, but I want to play the long play. Paul's reminding us of this. We don't have have time to theologically parse it all, but we get confused. There's a who's paying for your sin part of judgment, and there's a what did you actually do? Those are not the same. They're actually different. Paul's reminding us. So up for eternity. Reminding us that God promises this eternal life for those who believe. Specifically, the God who promises them is the same God who doesn't lie. Why is he saying this? Again, Zeus was all over their culture, and he was known as a liar and a tyrant who'd do anything to get what he wanted. He would manipulate quite easily to get what he wanted. And, and this was just kind of the culture that they lived in. And Paul's going, hey, your pagan God will manipulate and lie to get what he wants. God will not lie, but he tells you what is true. Paul is reminding Titus and us, maybe specifically this, the world promises you so many things. When we're talking about the world, we're not trying to castle us versus them. This is just talking about the spirit of the age, the things that aren't following Jesus, even the things that pull at our heart. The the world promises you so many things, so many riches, so many joys, and your emotions promise you so many things. And, And if you just do this, and if you get this, and you are this, and if you're seen like this, then things will be this way. But what is the reality? The world and our emotions lie to us all the time, all the time. We've got to be really careful. We don't ignore all of our emotions, but our emotions cannot be the gauge. The world lies to you. Your emotions lie to you. But he's saying, hold fast to the God who has never lied to you and never will because he is good and he is holy. Just on a personal level, who's harsher on you than you and who's led you wrong more than you? He's going, the God who's loved you enough to send you Jesus and never lied to you also wants you to follow him so that it just goes better than you following yourself. And there's just a personal element of my own story where I have to go like, yeah, I have not done a great job there. He's probably much more trustworthy than I am. This is what Paul is calling on. And there's this eternal life, this rock-solid promise that eternity is waiting for you. This is an invitation to live well, to live the good life, to follow Jesus well, knowing that you're not going to regret it and on your dying bed going, man, I wish I would have just forgot all that and done all of these other things. Live well the good life. In a way, Paul is asking us to reevaluate how we are doing and what we are trusting more. Are we trusting our desires, our minds, our emotions, our world, or our Father? Knowing that only one of those is a good option for us. We, we spent so much time in this ad- introduction just trying to hammer out the idea of the good life. And just the hope is you understand there is a biblical standard. It is there. And we are called to it. God serves as the metric for the standard, Christ specifically. We'll see more about that in the coming weeks, about how our belief uh, and our behavior need to line up or there's a a functional problem there. He'll call us to to live out what we're professing over and over, but what we want to land the plane on is just asking, if you buy into there is a good life, if you you say, yes, I believe there's a standard and there is a good life and there is a a metric, and all of us are trying to kind of live out the good life to the best of our ability, the question is, how are you trying to live that out right now? Like, by uh, by, by what method are you trying to lean into that? Are you aiming for the good life through pride, through fear, or through faith? The fourth option is you're just not aiming for it. And Man, if that's you, you're not sure what to make of Jesus or or, uh, the standard, man, I would just tell you the beauty of who Jesus is. He's not trying to make you do a million things to earn your acceptance. He came because you couldn't, and then he offers his righteousness to you. If you're not even trying for that standard, man, I 
But I hope that you would see there's a beautiful father who sent Jesus not to hurt you or steal from you or hose you, but to give you the life that you just cannot get for yourself on your own. If you are trying to live the good life out, though, out of pride or fear, these are things that we just want to speak into. Pride believes that you can live out the good life on your own. Right? We'd put our theological hat on like sideways for a second and we go, well, I've, I've got it. I'm saved. Like the baton has been passed to me. Like high five Jesus. Thank you for what you did. I've got this now. If you're just in this phase where you're like, I needed God to get in, but I can kind of handle it and I can stand up and I can do this thing on my own, it probably reflects itself in, in here's the, the purest way that I've seen it when it does it in my heart. It reflects it in, in prayerlessness. Why? Because you, you got it. it. It doesn't do things like adore the Father. It, it doesn't do things like confess very often. It, it, it doesn't even really ask for much. Why? Because the person who's living out the, the good life or trying to is just going, well, I just don't need it. I got it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the cross, but I got it now. If that's kind of where you find yourself, and understand we vacillate at different times. Or you've been trying to live out the good life alone, I mean, I, I would just invite you to remember the gospel again. Christ has come, why? Because you couldn't fix yourself. He's come to, to pray, pay the price for your sin for you and then to guide you and you continually need him. If you've been trying to live out the good life just kind of out of pride and haven't been able to identify it before, I just say, hey, would you humble yourself? You're a child of God who is fully loved. Your Savior has come so that you will not walk alone. Pride comes before the fall. Lean into Father. Lean into Jesus for the source of your good life. Lean into asking the Holy Spirit, will you help me? I need you. Man, I, I lived as if I, I, don't, I don't need you in, the, in these ways. Would Help me follow you well. I want to reflect you better and even in my dependence on you. If you've been trying to live out the good life out of fear and you've been aiming at the good life really maybe through an unhealthy fear of God. And we've, we've talked about this before, especially in our, in, our, in our healthy responses to the gospel a couple, a couple weeks ago. There's a good fear of God, and then there's an unbelieving the gospel fear of God that gets in us. It's always worried that you aren't enough. It's always trying to gain good favor. It's, it's more legalistically reading the Bible and legalistically praying to, to make sure that you've crossed off a metrics. In, in our house, me and my wife joke around, it's, it's triple confirming that you're saved, right? Because you got to know that you got to know that you got to know that you're good. So, you, so you're just kind of doing all these things going like, I know that Jesus did it, but I'm just like making sure to, to push my salvation over the line. Man, if this is you you probably are living in a failure mentality. And, and that possibly could actually press you further down the road into a victim mentality if you're not careful. Always feeling dirty. Here's the other part. Always exhausted. Why? Because you never put your labor down. You've always, always got to have the tool in the hand. Always got to be willing to work. Always got to be going and going and going. Always worried that, 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 that maybe Jesus will see the, the real side of you and, and, and he'll back out of the plan. If that's been your struggle, man, I just invite you to believe again today. We do the same thing over and over and over. We hear the one gospel, we see where our life has gone away from, and we re-lean into it. To realize that the beauty of the gospel is there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The things that you are making up for have already been paid for. Does how you live matter? Absolutely, but not to save you. Jesus paid it all, my friend. You don't have to always be afraid. This is where we talk about learning to rejoice. 
Right? That, guys, this is, what our, this is what our family needs to do more, to celebrate and rejoice and be grateful of the finished work of Jesus. Growing in your faith today may just learn to receive Jesus more fully over you. There's nothing that God can't redeem in Christ. My hope is that the good life isn't something that you will be striving for moving forward out of fear, but it's something instead that you pursue out of acceptance. I've been fully loved. I'm free to get after it. I'm free to show the world the Father who's been so good to me. Then if you've been living out of faith, this is receiving Christ's finished work gratefully and eagerly. Uh, knowing that you cannot do it alone and not trying to, striving to have your, your confession match your conduct to the best of your ability. Is, if this is you, then and as you take communion today, celebrate. That is fruit. God's done that. You didn't do that. God has done that in you, and he's changing you, and he's molding you. And there's a moment that you can take and just go, God, you've been so good to me. Thank you that you're forging this out of my life. And this is the place that we want to be, not out of pride and not out of fear. We want to be living out the good life in Jesus out of faith because he's done such a good thing for us and then see how, missional blooms, or how mission blooms out of our life because there is no fear of pride left there. It is just the, the pure picture of who Christ is. The, gospel, the good life lived out by faith is one we aim to relentlessly aim at. We know we could never do it. It's only Christ in us. So the, the prayer is that, that we will live that out of joy and gratitude, thankfulness and worship and awe of God. As we keep pressing forward in uh, the book, Garrett, you can come back up. I, man, I pray that we see ourselves clearly. That's the hope. I want, to, I want to see my own heart and, and see you to see yours more clearly, that we pursue the good life out of faith and walk in the mission of God for the glory of God. Friends, there is a holy standard. And that is a high standard of what is good and righteous. But the good news is there's also a lamb who has been said, it is terrifying to see and acknowledge the standard of good and godliness if there wasn't Jesus. But there is. So you can lean into that today. Jesus has finished the work and the hope is that we put the full weight of our faith into that. You have done a good work. I can never do it. I just want to lean into that. I want to walk into that. I want to try to earn that. And I sure don't want to boast like I could have done it on my own. Jesus, thank you for what you have done. We're going to take communion today as we close in worship. And I'll just tell you, you don't have to be a member here to take. The only thing that we ask is that your faith be in Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the reality. When, when we take in worship today, what we're doing is simply saying, the only reason that I can stand before a holy God is because you were on the cross for me. You take the bread and you take the drink and Jesus, your body was broken. You who lived the good life were broken for me. You have done all of this. I did none of this. And we thankfully receive the hope is that as you take this morning, your heart would just be built up in that Jesus, you are enough. You're faithful and you are good. Understand no matter if you've lived out of pride or fear over the last little bit, 
the invitation to take is still there. Jesus is a beautiful, wonderful Savior. And I hope that you'd see that clearly. Would you stand and pray with me as we get ready to worship?